Well, thank you so much. Good morning. Love for you now to take your, your Bibles, make your way in your Newer Testament to the Book of Acts, where we've been involved in a series since last September. And uh, we're making our way up to Acts chapter 14, aren't we, this morning? And we're going to be looking at verse 1 down through verse 18. And while you're turning there, we want to be able to get a sense of uh, our bearings. We want to be able to figure out just where we are geographically, visually, in the midst of all this. A couple of pictures appear on the screen to help us to understand a little more. First of all, here's our map. Here's how the Apostle Paul is making his way from one setting to the next. He started off in a place called Antioch, made his way into what's now modern-day Turkey. As you look at the map, you'll see he arrived at Perga, made his way up to another Antioch that's named after an Antiochus, who was a ruler in a prior time period. A bunch of Antiochs, like Antioch, Turkey, Antioch, Syria, Antioch, Illinois, and so on, that kind of thing. Uh, from Antioch, he made his way then to Iconium, and then from there to Lystra. I know a lot of people are prone to say in America, Lystra. Um, but you see, once you get out of America, it's pronounced Lystra. In fact, my last name, if I was back in the Scandinavian countries, it would be Hillander rather than Highlander, you see. And so that's how they handle their, their wives. Well, the next picture that you see, and we'll give you a sense of the road that he was taking. Now, bear in mind that God, in his sovereignty, allowed for the Roman government to set up a major road system throughout the Roman Empire politically so that the chariots would be able to go up and down the streets proclaiming the good news of the Roman emperor having been arriving on the scene. In reality, it was the sovereign God allowing his apostles, believers, to proclaim the good news that the risen Savior has arrived on the scene. And God used in his sovereignty the Roman Empire to achieve the purpose for the expansion of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Isn't that your God, you see? Well, with that in mind, you've made your way now to Acts chapter 14. We're looking at verse 1 down to verse 18. And so for those of us here, as well as in the other room, the overflow, and for our online live stream congregation, we pick it up verse 1. I'd love to read to verse 7. And here you read that now at Iconium they entered together into this Jewish synagogue, spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly before the Lord who spoke witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, and some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, uh, cities of Laconia and to the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. 
Well, that gives us a running start, doesn't it? And gets us to where we need to go, which we'll take down to verse 18 today. We're going to start, though, with a word of prayer. So, Father, what we're asking now, with first service completed, second period underway, the live stream unfolding, youth group ministries unfolding, children's ministries reinstituted. I'm asking that in a very distinctive way in the multiple layers of what's happening this morning that you speak to us at our point of need and you know the needs. You know what's keeping someone awake at night. You know the hardness of a certain heart. You're able to peer into the curiosity of the one who is intellectually curious but not yet having clamped down upon the truth that Jesus Christ is that personal Savior and Lord for their own everyday life experience. May it happen today. Do great work. No matter where this is being observed, heard, Holy Spirit's present. Warm these hearts. Engage these minds. Shape these wills. As again, our Father, we've come here to see Jesus, Him only. And we're praying these things to again now in, in Jesus' name. Amen. Story some of us are well aware of, but always worth repeating. You see, there was the violinist, his name was uh, Pagani great violinist, classical. And he stood before this packed house in Italy, and he was surrounded by a full orchestra, you see. He was playing a, a number of different and difficult pieces. And he came to one of his favorites. And this was underway, and as the audience was sitting there in rapt attention, one of the strings on his violin snapped. Well, relying on his genius, he improvised and continued to play on with just three strings. But then a second string broke. He had to adjust, get creative, continue to improvise, continue playing the piece. And then at the end of the concerto, third string snapped, and amazingly, we're told, he finished the piece on one string, and the audience was spellbound. Whenever I ponder that story, I think about those who experience the extremes of life those that have gone through the tough times. To put it another way, a string broke. Then another string broke. Then another string broke. And you wonder, how do you keep on keeping on? And how do you go about living for Jesus when your strings keep breaking? 
For the Apostle Paul, Acts chapter 14 is a series of broken strings. And yet he's got to keep on keeping on. How do you go about doing that? And how do you go about living for Jesus in the midst of the extremes? What I want to do is to draw two requisites that are found here in these 18 verses. See how they relate to modern day 2020 living generally, but as well for us personally. Requisites. And the first comes out of verse 1 through 7, and we're going to pen it like this, that presenting Christ in the midst of the extreme conditions of life requires, first of all, perseverance, especially when in the midst of extreme conditions of life, perseverance, you're facing relational conflict. Pick it up now with me at verse 1. In verse 1, you and I are told here now, now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number, a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. Now, where do we begin with this? I want you to take a, a good hard look at a picture that should appear on the screen at this point, Iconium. Iconium is a, a setting within modern-day Turkey. It was a Roman colony. It was a Greco-Roman type culture. They're still close enough, you see, to the shoreline. They're going to be getting news from the overall Roman Empire as to what's happening out there. A little more sophisticated than what's going to happen, you're going to see in a few minutes, in Lystra. So, what's the Apostle Paul going to do in a setting like this that's highly Romanized? with a heavy flavor of Greek. He goes into Jewish synagogue. Why? Well, he's got this philosophy, you see, that he spelled out in Romans 1, verse 16, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. And so he goes into the Jewish synagogue as his starting point, but not his ending point. And while there, he speaks in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believe. Back to the text. Now, as you and I are examining this at this point, notice that it says that he spoke in such a way. He's articulate. He's powerful. In other words, the phrase in such a way tells you, tells me, there's a very distinguishing approach by the way which he communicates truth. You and I have bumped into occasionally highly eloquent people, and they have a way of distinctively stating things different than the way that's out there in the norm. That's Paul. You can almost see now they're leaning forward there in Iconium, and he's speaking in such a way that notice this now. You're there in verse 1 with me. A great number of both Jews and Greeks believe not Jews to the exclusion of Greeks, you see, but both. You see, he's got this capacity to be able to swing the pendulum as he speaks. Now, in the extremes of life, whatever it is that you're facing right now, 
people are watching and people are processing and people will be asking, how does she deal with, how does he deal with these things so effectively? You're going to have a wide-ranging audience and you're going to have to allow for oscillation where the pendulum swings from one side to the other. You're connecting with a wide range of people that might be very much like you or very much different from you simultaneously you're going to have to find ways to be able to effectively speak in such a way in your pain, in your loss, in the broken strings of life, that in your own cultural experience, both Jew and Gentile, so to speak metaphorically, are being gripped by what you have to say. Here's Paul. They believe. Now, you're up to verse 2, aren't you? Always expect the evil one to have pushback moments such as this. When people in their extremes are able to communicate the good news effectively, the evil one then is going to look for a, a counterforce to be able to hinder the forward movement, even in highly religious settings. So they're in the synagogue in verse 2. The unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles. Interesting. These were religious unbelievers stirring up the Gentile population and get this, poisoning their minds, you see, against the brothers. The word poison was a medical term used in that time period. Not surprisingly, the physician Luke would use a term like that he wants us to be able to understand that something, there's an infection in essence that has set in to counter the wholeness of the gospel presentation. So there's polarization unfolding in front of our very eyes here in a religious setting in the synagogue. This happens. It happens. So do you flee? Do you run? Back off and say, I don't like polarization, don't like conflict, don't like tension when the gospel is being presented. Get this. In verse 3, you and I are told, so they remained for a long time. Talk about Paul. Talk about Barnabas. Talking about their colleagues. Rather than stepping back, it's as if they took their position and kept on keeping on even when the strings start breaking. Not a short time. They remained a long time speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by on their hands. We're told that when Athanasius, one of the early church fathers, you see, was told by his judge that the whole world was against him, Athanasius responded with these words. Then Athanasius is against the whole world. A man who communicated the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Luther had to be operating with internal passion as he stood before the intimidating authorities, the papal legates from Rome. He said, here I am. Here I stand, 
I can do no other. It's that kind of thing that grips the heart and allows a person, when the strings of life one by one snap, to be able to handle the extremes in such a way that your passion connects with perseverance and you're able to stand strong when others are prone to run and flee. Where are you at in all that? Well, here up to verse 4. Spilled out into the streets. What happens, you see, inside the walls doesn't stay inside the walls. Spills out into the streets of Iconium. People are now divided. You see it there in verse 4. Some are siding with the Jews. Some are siding with the apostles. But the evil one's not going to leave it there because in verse 5, you and I are then informed when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews, you see now the converging forces with their rulers, the civil magistrates. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them, and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derby, the cities of cities of Laconia and to the surrounding country. Well then it's time to move on, you see. Now Paul knew something about stonings. Known as Saul of Tarsus, he oversaw one. Stephen. When Stephen proclaimed the good news of Jesus Christ and traced genealogically and chronologically movements towards the one we know as Messiah Jesus. Now, it's almost as if we have spiritual boomerang effect occurring on our hands now. And so now here is Paul, and he's facing what will be not the last of a stoning attempt on his life. So what do you do? Do you step back? Do you retreat? Do you find some kind of hidden retreat center and um, recuperate. Well, in verse 7, you and I are told they continue to preach the gospel. See. 1945. Captain Terry Simmerall, he, he brings his crippled B-29 in for a safe landing. It's amidst the waiting fire engines and red flares. Unloads the plane enters the group headquarters, and his face is white, white as can be. He's in a state of shock. It takes several minutes before he can talk. Something incredible has just happened. As Captain Simmerall piloted his Pathfinder plane toward the enemy coast in order to drop phosphorus smoke to the mark to mark the mission's target. On B-29s, it was the radio operator's job to release the bomb through a narrow tube. And on this particular night, the writer tells us, a Sergeant Henry Irwin received the routine order, triggered the flare, dropped it down the tube, but there was a malfunction, and the bomb exploded and bounced back into Irwin's face, blinding both eyes and searing off an ear. 
burning phosphorus melts metal like butter, and the bomb was now at Sergeant Irwin's feet, eating rapidly through the deck of the plane. He was alone because the navigator had gone to the transparent dome atop the plane to make some computations. The writer goes on to say, not having the luxury of time to analyze the situation, Erwin, get this, Erwin picked up the white-hot bomb in his bare hands, stumbled forward toward the cockpit, groping along with elbows and feet. The navigator's folding table was down and latched, blocking the way. Sergeant Irwin hugged the blazing bomb under one arm as it burned the flesh over his ribs, unfastened the latch, lifted the table. He stumbled on a walking torch, his clothing hair blazed, and smoke filled the plane. Simrall had opened the window beside him to clear the air. I could not see Irwin, said Simrall. But I heard his voice right at my elbow, and he said, pardon me, sir. And he reached across the window and tossed the bomb out. And then he collapsed on the flight deck, unquote. Amazingly, Sergeant Irwin survived, went on to regain the use of his hands and partial vision in his eye, and was one of our country's Congressional Medal of Honor winners, receiving the award from General Curtis LeMay while still in a Pacific hospital. And we ask ourselves, what keeps a man keeping on? But when you believe in your mission, as an Apostle Paul believes in his mission, you find the passion from within to connect to the perseverance that is required to do what matters most, even when your strings keep breaking. How many strings in your life have broken? Keeping on, keeping on. Finding a way of wedding passion with perseverance. Paul did. He didn't retreat. Verse 7 tells us they continued on. It's the communication of the gospel. Perseverance. Especially when facing relational conflict, and he did. But here's the other requisite. Perspective. Perspective. Especially when choosing what I'll call conversational starting points because when you're living in the extremes of life, people are going to have questions. People are going to be watching. And how are you going to begin talking about what matters most in the midst of the extremes you face? Where do you begin? What do you say? 
I call these on-ramps. We refer to them as starting points. Watch how the Apostle Paul now, as he moves into a new setting, develops a starting point for sharing the gospel. Because now you're up to verse 8, aren't you? In verse 8, you find yourself making your way about 18 miles southwest with the Apostle Paul. And now you are in Lystra. It's still a little further removed from what's happening. Is there a picture we can show on the screen? Well, if there is, what you're going to see here, that this is a rural setting. And so they've got, uh, they've got rural customs and traditions. And they are steeped, you see, in Roman mythology. Not particularly schooled in the ultimate things of life. Embracers of the traditions of the myths of their time. The rural people, that's what they were at that moment. That's where he is, a little further in what we call Turkey. He's at Lystra. There's a man here. You're in verse 8. He's sitting, couldn't use his feet, and now the physician. He must have been an orthopedic, I'm telling you. He, we're told here this man was crippled from birth, had never walked. I can see now Luke the physician who pens the book of Acts pausing and analyzing this man's condition, you see. Then he goes on writing. He listened. Listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand up, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. Let's pause there at this point. Because what this tells me then is when you and I, when we're looking for what I'll call conversational starting points to talk about what matters most when you're living in the extremes of life and your strings keep breaking, what we need is an awareness of critical needs around us. Did you spot that in that verse, the Apostle Paul was looking intently. He's gone through a lot. But he doesn't have this dazed, glazed look. Instead, he's assessing the needs that are out there. Now, what the wise follower of Jesus Christ continuously does is says to himself, herself, I've got to continuously evaluate the Scriptures and I've got to continuously evaluate the culture, and I've got to build a bridge through my life from scriptures to culture. You do that in the workplace. You do that in the schools. You do that in your relationships. You've got to find a way to build a bridge. Build a bridge based upon where the critical needs are. Spot the critical needs. Build the bridge from scripture to culture, through your life to that life, Paul does it, and you can too. He's got to be tired. I mean, this man, he is a man of endurance. He's walked those 18 miles, and he's, he's ready for action. Not in a timid voice, 
loud voice because he wants the people around to be able to connect word and action. Stand upright on your feet. Sprang up. Sprang up. Began walking. It's astounding. Now, what happens? When the crowds, remember now, we're in a setting in which these people are a little bit cocooned in this world. When the crowds saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices. You're camping with me in verse 11 at the moment. and saying in this Ikaonian language, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Now, that tells you, tells me that this is a pluralistic culture. They're not focused upon the singular God that you and I know of. They've been influenced by Roman mythology. As a matter of fact, read on a little further. Because in verse 12, we're told Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Why? Because there was tradition, there was a time in the past when Zeus and Hermes came to visit a village nearby and nobody offered hospitality and so they left without offering the blessings. And these folk were not going to let that happen again, you see. Well, no. You ever see somebody who has such class, such dignity, such stature, they walk into a room and heads turn that's Barnabas. Barnabas they called Zeus. The Greek name, Roman name, Jupiter. And in Roman mythology, this is the one who rules the sky and the weather. Why is that so important? Anybody who comes out of the farming community knows the significance of issues pertaining to weather. They wanted to get it right this time, you see. But furthermore, there's Paul. They call Paul Hermes. If it was the Roman name, it would be Mercury. Well, Hermes in Greek mythology was the messenger of the gods. I remember when some of our family members, we were making our way in Greece, and we passed Mount Olympus, where supposedly Zeus reigned. And our tour guide, she and I were quietly talking back and forth. And she, she said, that's where the 12 Olympians were. And I had some notes in front of me. I wrote down the counterfeit 12. Because you see, in both Greek and Roman mythology, they had the 12 Olympians. And in Christianity, we have the 12 disciples. In the Old Testament, we had the 12 tribes. And it's fascinating how you have to continuously bring ultimate truth into mythological thinking, which can even encapsulate the mindset of the culture that we're in today. And so they've simply bought into the modern myths. What's the Apostle Paul going to do at this point? 
When you're trying to figure out your starting point of sharing the gospel and the extremes of life, as the strings of life continuously snap, there has to be an awareness of critical needs that he demonstrates in verse 8 through 10. But there also has to be an awareness of influential beliefs. As he spots in verse 11 through 13, what are you going to say when these people share what it is they believe? Because everybody is a believer. The question is, are they a true believer or a false believer? A believer in what's true or a believer in what's false? So what's your starting point? How are you going to talk to somebody who has counterfeit mythological mindsets regarding spiritual matters? They don't have their Bibles. He's in the countryside. They are, they are dependent upon the, the myths, the traditions of the region. Those of you that are involved in biblical studies in college or graduate school, Spotted some in the various services as well, and know of some online at this moment. This is general revelation you're about to see. And how you move from general revelation to special revelation. You move from nature to Jesus. Now you see, he doesn't, they, he spots them. He, they don't have their, their Bibles in front of them. They're not in the synagogue. Where do you begin? talking to somebody where they don't have a natural starting point to talk about Jesus. He goes to nature. That's his starting point, but it's not his ending point. He wants to talk about the God of nature. Why is that significant? Because they thought Zeus was the God of nature, and he was the one who would be able to provide the rains. As a matter of fact, his symbol in Roman uh, mythology was the thunderbolt. Greek mythology. So you start off when you develop a starting point with a question. Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men. Now, here's what we need to be able to do in today's culture of racial tensions and so on. I'll deal with more of this next week. Determine your starting point for for what I will call cultural conversations, evangelistically. He goes to Genesis. He deals with what we call in Latin the Imago Dei. We are made in the image of God. He's finding common ground. He's saying we're all in this thing together. So now he says, you're human, I'm human. We've been made in the image of God. So he finds common ground. Likewise to you and me in the midst of the extremes of life. You see, When it seems like the strings are snapping in the culture. Start with a question. Then goes on to say, we also are men. We're in this thing together. Of like nature with you. Boy, he doesn't, he doesn't miss a beat, does he? Because then he just immediately says, we bring you good news. Now what's fascinating is that that Roman system was set up 
so that messengers like Hermes would bring good news of political conquest. And now here is the Apostle Paul, whom they've dubbed as Hermes, bringing good news. Now they are listening, you see. They're listening. That you should turn, Greek word epistrepho, is a word used again and again throughout both the book of Luke as well as the book of Acts by the physician Luke's writings, turn. That you should turn from these vain things to a living God. And now they've got to know all about this God who lives. He's going to be aiming at the one who three days later was raised from the dead. Will he get there? But then, taking on Zeus, going shoulder to shoulder, Head to head, toe to toe, he now talks about our sovereign God and says, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. And now what he's doing is that he's moving from, the, he's moving from creation to cross. Now, for those who are not steeped in the scriptures, you're going to have to find a different starting point than scriptures. And starting with the scriptures, you're going to have to start with creation and move from creation to cross. Creation is not your end point, but it can be your starting point. And create a forward movement to Christ and the cross, who made the heaven and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. And then he, he now pulls them in past generations. He allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven. And they think that's what Zeus was supposed to be all about, the thunderbolt. That's his symbol. Fruitful seasons. It's a farming community he's talking to. Satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. That's exactly what Zeus was supposed to be doing. He has gone right to where they are at in the culture. Do the same. Back in the day when the church in prior centuries was rejecting scientific theories about the planetary system. Galileo said about the university professors of his day in a letter to a fellow scientist, Kepler, I wish, my dear Kepler, that we could have a good laugh together at the extraordinary stupidity of the mob. What do you think of the foremost philosophers of the university? In spite of my oft-repeated efforts and invitations, they have refused again and again and again to look at the planets or the moon or even the sun at my telescope, through my telescope. And then Kepler, who was also a Christian, a scientist, in 1595, wrote this to a friend, quote, I wanted to be a theologian, for I was a long time, I was, I was unhappy that I couldn't be, but now, behold, God is being praised through my work in astronomy and wrote on another occasion, Kepler, as he said, his objective was to practice science so that, quote, to try to think God's thoughts after him, unquote. Now, this is what the Apostle Paul has done. He has interpreted the culture accurately. He's interpreted Scripture accurately. He's interpreted the culture accurately. And he has built a bridge from Scripture to culture. He has built a bridge, you see, from 
the creation to Christ onwards to the cross. Will they let me get there? Wow. God has said, he did not leave himself without witness. And the Greek word for witness, martyrs, forget the word martyr from. He's gone after Zeus subtly, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And he ends with these words. Even with these words. Man, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifices, you see, to them. There was a missionary whose name was Hotchkiss who wrote, I have dwelt 40 years practically alone in Africa, 39 times stricken with fever, three times attacked by lions, several times by rhinoceri. But let me say to you, I would gladly go through the whole thing again if I could have the joy of bringing that word Savior into the darkness of the settings that I have walked. People, we've got to bring light to dark even when the strings of life break, one after another after another. But when we do so, you've got an audience. You've got people paying attention. And they wonder how you keep on keeping on as you make your way from a starting point to the ending point, Jesus Christ. Let's stand together. So now, Father, we're asking that you use each one in all these services, live stream, elsewhere, to take your word, not some pastor's word. Take your word, relate truth to life practically, effectively, in 2020, living and beyond. Guide us in such a way, Father, that we meet the extremes of life head on, by proclaiming the risen Savior. So thank you, Father, for this morning. Thank you for how you speak to hearts. Use these words now for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.